This is day 215 of our daily Bible reading. We'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapters 6 through 10. Lord Heavenly Father, you have such wonderful things planned for us. You are our risen Lord. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords, reigning on high at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the moment to come back and to take us home. Oh Lord, you have waited until now because there are still people left to be saved. As we enter into your word today, help us to put some urgency into the gospel. Help us to see that our time on earth is limited, as well as the people that need to hear your word are limited as well. Let us have a sense of urgency throughout our day that we may share the word of God with people who need to hear it. Please whisper into our hearts when it is your timing for us to do so. Please bless the reading of this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you, that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your own brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, 
the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that even if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. But the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all my churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God 
each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion, as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that it is good, in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of this world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, 
he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? 
and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may be all means saving some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and twenty-three thousand fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, 
and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we are all partakers of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience's sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions, for conscience' sake. But if he says to you, This is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it, for the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience' sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. There was a lot of good stuff today, wasn't there? It was fascinating to read and was a great refresher for me. I learned a lot just going through this. So let's go through a few important things that we learned today. In chapter 6, we talk about the problem with litigation in heathen courts. The problem with this is that we have a court that we would go to 
that is not godly. It is not a righteous, just court. So why, as Christians, would we have these kind of issues with each other and want to take believers to a heathen court? There's something very wrong with that. And he wants us to figure out our problems ourselves and to forgive and to not let this stuff get in the way of our worship of the Lord. But then he says something very interesting here. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's fascinating to think about. I suppose it's because of our union with Christ that we will somehow be involved in the judgment of the world. That's certainly an interesting thing to think about. And then it also says that we will judge angels. That is also something very interesting. We're going to judge angels? I don't know what they need to be judged from unless they're talking about the fallen angels, but that's interesting because that means that we will be princes in this new kingdom. We will be a form of royalty, nobility, if you will, to where we'll have authority over the things in the heavenly realms. That's amazing that we get to share that because of the heirship we have with Jesus Christ. So very fascinating to think about. Then Paul reminds us in the second half of chapter 6 that morality is extremely important. And so he shows us that unrighteous people will not inherit the kingdom of God, and he gives several examples of what it looks like to be unrighteous. And you can see that the pattern of the world right now is all of these different things. Do not be deceived, right? Because there's going to be people who tell you, oh, it's okay. It's okay to be interested in children sexually. Or, oh, it's okay to lie. No means yes, yes means no. It's okay to be gay. It's okay to take from those who are rich and give it to the poor. It's okay to hate people because of the color of their skin. Alcohol is not that big of a deal. It's legal. You know, you get all these lies that are fed to you every single day. And the Lord is reminding us here not to listen to that stuff. He's already told us what he expects from us. And we have a conscience. He's also, as a Christian, given us the Holy Spirit, who is able to convict us of the wrongdoings we may think or do. So we need to stay away from these things, and we need to do the opposite. Instead of fornication, we need to be sexually pure. Instead of idolaters, we need to give everything to the Lord. Instead of an adulterer, we need to be faithful to our spouse. Instead of being effeminate, we need to be what God made us to be. A male is a male, a female is a female, so on and so forth. Now, in verse 12, he says something interesting. He says that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So we, as Christians, have liberty. We are free from the law. However, it appears that the Corinthian people were trying to use their Christian freedom to justify sin. They didn't get the letter to the Romans. The Romans got that one. But he said some interesting things in there about that, didn't he? 
He said some very important things about how we are to handle ourselves, as well as not using our Christianity as a license to sin, or using God's grace in our lives to make it okay for us to sin. He never said that, and that was never God's intention. So he gives us a direct command in verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body internally. Why is this a big deal? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? As a believer, you have someone very important who has taken up residence within you, the Holy Spirit, as a seal of the guarantee of eternal life. And he will challenge you. He will convict you. He will train you. He will discipline you. Why would you want to defile your body when there is the holiness of God within you? The same God that spoke all things into creation is the same God that is within you. The same God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same resurrecting power within you. That is a glorious gift. Why would you want to defile that? Why would you want to dishonor your body that God has graciously given you, and he wants you to glorify him with it? Be good to your body. I am not being good to my body because I am overweight. I know I need to work on that, but more than just food and exercise, he's also talking about the moral side within us, how pure we are sexually, for example. So we need to make sure that we honor our Lord properly with our bodies. And then he segues into a very important chapter of Scripture, especially for those that are married or interested in getting married. Chapter 7 is a very important chapter when it comes to how to understand the dynamic between a husband and a wife. And what about those that are not married? Is there a problem with that? And so Paul explains in greater detail. So because it says that the two become one flesh, then that means that each person is responsible for the other person's body. There should never be a time, for example, that one spouse deprives the other spouse of sex, whether because of arguments or because of their personal decision. That's not fair to the other spouse. They need to be in agreement with each other. And also the way that they interact with each other, it's very important that they are not depriving attention or affection, things like that, because that's just wrong. And what will it do? It will give Satan the opportunity to tempt you. And what happens most often? You will have a lack of self-control, and you will do something you will regret that will damage the relationship. Some even going as far as saying, well, if I can't get it here, then I'm going to go find it somewhere else. And then that is going to spiral out of control. Now, Paul says as well that for those that are unmarried or widows, he prefers, now he says it's his opinion, he prefers that they stay in that condition. And his argument is that because they are not devoted to another person, it is just them alone, 
That person has all the time and attention to focus solely on the ministry of God. So there are some people, and it is a spiritual gift, to where they can remain chaste and they can remain single throughout their lives, and there's nothing wrong with that. Not everyone is destined to get married and have children. Not everyone is destined to be a pastor. There tends to be this misunderstanding in church that the highest position that you can be if you're the most godly person is a pastor. That is just another member of the body. That is not necessarily the end goal. You want to be the best possible Christian you can, yes, but being a pastor is not the highest position in the land. Being a good Christian, doing what God has told you to do, is good enough, because he has a specific plan for you. So if you want to get married, get married. It is better that you marry someone who is a Christian, because you don't have the power to save people. For all you know, that spouse that you married who is not a believer may or may not get saved. Ultimately, it does say that the house will be sanctified because of that person who is saved, and that the children will also be sanctified in some way. So it shows that one person being in a home that is a Christian makes it a godly home. There are some benefits that are derived from that. But it's not a guarantee that your household will get saved, so just be careful with that. That's why it's recommended believers marry each other. Try not to marry an unbeliever. Now, I know there are people that marry them anyway, or were unsaved when they got married, and then they got saved, and you have that dynamic, but God's purpose is perfect, and he has a purpose for all of this. So if you have the means to get married, get married, especially if sexually you cannot control yourselves. If you have the urges, you want to sow your wild oats, so to speak, and you will not be able to control yourself, you need to get married. If you can control yourself, which is a godly attribute, then use that gift for God's glory. Either way is, is acceptable. Chapter 8 goes down an interesting topic. And this was a question that was brought to Paul's attention from the Corinthian church, and it seems like he's responding to it. Can a Christian eat food that was sacrificed to an idol or to a pagan god? Now, what he's saying here is that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. Well, what? Of course there are. Why would the Bible tell us to stay away from idols if there were no idols? Okay, so let's understand this. He recognizes that there are things that are so-called gods, things that we prop up and call an idol, or things that we identify as a god. But really, they're not gods, right? They're not anything but demonic gods ideas that we are running with. So if you have a little statue propped up, there is no spiritual power in it. It is an object that you are worshiping, yes, but it has no spiritual power of itself. And if you believe in a false god, that god doesn't have any power because he doesn't exist. So that's what he's trying to say, is that God is the only god that exists, and so his power is what matters. And so, if people are sacrificing meat, for example, to an idol, because they're sacrificing it to that idol, it doesn't give it some sort of evil property, 
because it's a material object. And God is a spirit. He is not affected by the physical realm. And being a believer, neither are you. Because spiritually, that stuff means absolutely nothing. So will it kill you if you ate meat that was sacrificed to an idol? Absolutely not. But what he does tell you is to listen to your conscience. But not only that, but also to observe the conscience of the people around you. Let's take one modern example. Let's talk about when we had the COVID-19 pandemic. I don't want to think about that anymore, but let's talk about that briefly. So, in my opinion, the masks don't do anything. There is scientific evidence that the masks do not prevent the spread of the virus. I personally believe that the masks are a complete waste of time. There are some people in my church who disagree. They still think that masks prevent the spread of COVID-19. They're wrong, but I respect what they're doing, and I'm not going to offend them and damage my relationship with someone over a disagreement like that. So I'm not going to get in their face and say, hey, you're wrong. What are you doing? I might bring it up eventually in a way that is loving, but I'm not going to mock that person for wearing a mask. And the inverse would be true as well. If he or she feels comfortable with only interacting with me with a mask, then the right thing to do and the loving thing to do would be to abide by what they said and put on a mask briefly. That's not going to kill you if you wear a mask. But for the sake of not offending your brother or sister in Christ, that may be necessary. But what he's showing is that that kind of ideology is a weak-minded ideology. Now, he's talking about food sacrificed to idols. We know, mature Christians may know, that that doesn't do anything to you if it's dedicated to a false god. But there are some people that do think that. And we don't want to drive that person away from the Lord. You see what I'm saying? So we may need to make adjustments in ourselves in order to not be offensive for the sake of something that is so unimportant in the grand scheme of things. So don't offend a brother because of that. And if it's a, it's a real issue, obviously we need to do something about it. But if it's something that is not going to hurt you either way, but for the sake of respect and wanting to win your brother, then you may need to do it and accommodate that person. Now in chapter 9, this one is an interesting one because it's almost as if Paul is giving his rights. He's giving his restrictions. And ultimately, he's setting himself up to be an example for people to follow and his credentials as to why he's worthy to be followed. And one important thing he does in many of the scriptures that he writes is that he doesn't depend on other people while he's in the ministry. We've seen that his profession is that of a tent maker. He makes tents for a living. That's his profession, his trade. He would often do that all day, kind of like a full-time job. And after that, then he would spend his evenings and his free time in sharing the gospel with people. He did that to not be dependent on anyone, but rather to not be a burden on anyone either. 
or the appearance that he had some sense of entitlement, which technically he does have the entitlement to it, but he didn't want to be offensive. And he wanted to show what it could be like for not being dependent on someone else, but rather taking care of your own business and then ministering to the needs of others. So he set a lot of good examples in the way he does things. But then he has some restrictions. He tends to put himself into whatever category he's trying to reach. And I think this is important to consider. He understands that he must preach the gospel. Like he says in verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And that should be a key verse for us. But then he makes himself like other people. Like if it says if they're under the law, he makes himself like under the law. If he's ministering to the weak, he makes himself weak. He changes and adapts to these differing situations so that he can win as many souls as possible. He wants to be relatable. Now, there's a line that you have to not cross. You never sacrifice the ordinances of God for this. You see that in a lot of churches today. Well, we want to bring more people into the church, so let's allow homosexuals. No, that's not what it says. Well, we want to accommodate people and be more seeker-sensitive, so let's allow female pastors. Or let's host a drag show reading time. No, those things sacrifice the integrity of God, and that is not what Paul's talking about here. He is maintaining his stance in the Lord, but at the same time, he is adjusting to the needs of those that he's trying to witness to. We should do the same thing. And then in verse 24, he refers to the course that we have in this world as Christians as being like a race. And he uses this illustration because Corinth had a very big athletic event. Similar to the Olympics, not as big as the Olympics, but something like it. And then he shows that, well, everyone's working hard, everyone's training day in and day out to perform these crazy feats of athleticism, all for a wreath that perishes. But yet we, as Christians, are going to earn an imperishable wreath. And what is that? That is the spiritual treasures that we're saving up in heaven, the glory of God being rewarded to us in heaven. So then he changes gears real quick and talks about his body, how he must discipline it and make it his slave. Because remember, like we talked about in the book of Romans, is that there is a war going on inside of us, the flesh versus the spirit. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? So what he tries to do as best as he can is to master his own body. That way, he's not struggling with it so much. His opponent is his own body because it's evil. So by self-discipline, he tries to give it some knockout blows, if you will. That's why he says he boxes in a particular way because he's trying to be under control so that he can do the things of God. Chapter 10 shows us some very interesting things, too. I think everything's interesting, right? He mentions here that when 
the Israelites were in the Exodus, that there was a rock that would follow them around, and it was a spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. So was he really the rock that was following them around? It may very well be, because in the old days, there was a legend that the rabbis would pass around, that there was a material rock that would follow them. But Paul is saying that it was Christ who was with Israel all the way, not necessarily a rock. But he was the rock. He was their nourishment. He was their provider. And for all we know, yes, he manifested himself as some sort of a rock that gave water, or he allowed the rock to exist, and it did follow them around. It's very interesting. But then he reminds us in verse 8 to not act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. This number is a little bit different from what you would see in the book of Numbers. Because what it's talking about here is that time when God sent fiery serpents upon the people after they were complaining for the 50th time. And many people died from the bites of these snakes unless they looked at a bronze serpent that was placed on a pole made by Moses and if they looked at it, they would be saved. The number is different in the book of Numbers, strangely enough, than what we have here. Is that a contradiction? No, it's not, because you have to read very carefully what it says. He says here that 23,000 fell in one day. In one day. In the book of Numbers, it says the total number that died from this. So no, it's not a contradiction. And then he shows us here that all these things happened to them as an example, and it was written for our instruction so that we would not do the same things that they did. That's amazing when you think about that, that he allowed these events to take place in the lives of other people so that we could learn from it. That's fascinating. And then he talks about something here where how temptation is not uncommon to all people. Everyone deals with the same kind of temptation. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. It may have different coats of paint. It have, may appear different in some ways. There may be variations of it. But ultimately, we all are tempted in the same way, just like Christ was. However, temptation is not beyond our ability to resist because of God. You try to do it on your own, you will fail. But if you depend on God and the armor of God, then you'll be okay. You can get through it. Will it be easy? No. But you can escape from it. There will be a way out, and it's up to you to take it. He will not give you more than you are able to handle when it comes to temptation. Because if he did, wouldn't that mean that God caused you to sin? And God doesn't do that. Ultimately, the decision you make is up to you, and he knows the decision you're going to make. But he gives you the opportunity to walk away from it if you choose to. The last thing to look at in the second half of chapter 10 is how we need to be glorifying God, which is what is expected of us, of course, but the best way to do it is to seek the welfare of someone else. To not think about ourselves so much, but rather to have a servant's heart. The more that we serve other people, the better we feel. The more good that we do for people, 
the more joy we get. There is truth in that. And there is scientific truth of that as well, that the more charitable you are, the more happy you are. There's something about it. And it is a God-given attribute. We need to obey our conscience, and we need to do the right thing for other people. That's how we can love our neighbor as ourselves, right? Because we don't need to worry about ourselves. God's already taking care of us. We know where we're going as our eternal destination. So what do we have to worry about? We need to worry about other people. Whatever we do, whether it's eating or drinking or anything at all, you do it for the glory of God. This is all-inclusive. All your conduct must glorify God. Every activity you do should glorify God. Everything that comes out of your mouth should glorify God. We need to see it that way as we organize our lives and make decisions. What is going to give God glory? And so often we don't think that way, but that is how God is telling us to think. And I think this is a good place to stop. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.